Cause there's no stress I know it's not enough for crime Something special in my mind Nothing's gonna cause me distress Got to find another boy Cause I don't wanna waste my time I don't wanna feel distress It's not that I'm lazy Think I'm just crazy It's not that I'm lazy Did anyone hear about the Florida man who walked outside and he found this dead snake in his backyard lying against his uh, house foundation? Anyone hear about that? Authorities think that this snake had been living under his house for years. In fact, they said it was really good that the man didn't have any plumbing problems or heat and air problems and no one had tried to crawl underneath the house. And they think this snake died because it ate poisonous rats, or I should say rats that had been poisoned. It ended up poisoning the snake. People, this snake was huge and it gives me the willies just thinking about it living underneath this man's house so if you don't mind let me show you a video of what this man found <laughs> well, I have to admit, I purposely tried to get you. And the reason I tried to get you is because I wanted you to be stressed before I actually talked about the subject. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not stressed. It just startled me. Well, if it startled you, you're stressed. And let me explain why I say that. Stress is a physiological condition of the body. It's a state of arousal and excitation in response to a perceived danger, threat, or pressure situation. In fact, when a person is stressed, their blood pressure begins to rise. Their senses intensify. Their muscles tense and, tense, and their attention focuses on the circumstance or the circumstances that cause the stress. And medical science has proven this, and the snake video was a great example of it. Think about it. For those of you who were startled by the snake in the video, you're experiencing the same physiological conditions that I just described. Your heart's beating a little faster, your senses are a little bit sharper, your muscles are more tense, and you're still thinking about that snake, aren't you? So you're stressed, because that's what stress is. It's a physiological condition of the body. Now in a minute, your heart will begin to slow down and you'll become more relaxed. So your senses won't be nearly as sharp and your muscles won't be as tense as they are right now. And you'll forget about the snake. But until that happens, your body is stressed. Now, believe it or not, there are times when stress is good. And let me give you an example to prove that. Let's suppose that you were the person who found the snake in your backyard. And you thought the snake was dead. So you ran inside and you grabbed your video camera and you started at the tail and you started videoing this thing and you came to the head and you're talking about it's dead and you say, I just want to get a close-up of the face. And so as you come towards the head, all of a sudden that snake strikes and you barely have time just to throw your arms up and it latches onto your arm and then it tries to coil its body around you. At that point, people, stress is a very good thing. 
Because it instantly causes your adrenal glands to release adrenaline into the bloodstream. And adrenaline is what gives you that instant energy rush. It's like drinking 10 or 12 Red Bulls all at once. Your heart immediately starts beating faster. And the reason it's doing that is because it's trying to get that adrenaline through your body just as quickly as it can. Your senses are sharper than they've ever been. And now you're trying to get that snake to let go. And so you're looking for all the vulnerable parts on it. And you're looking for anything that you might use as a weapon. Every muscle is tense and working together to try and overcome the snake. And you're not thinking about anything else. Except how can I let, get loose or get away from this snake. Now, people you need to understand. In this situation, stress is a very good thing. Right? Right. And if you don't think so... Just imagine what would happen if that situation did not produce stress in your body. No adrenaline would be released. And even if it were, without the heart beating faster, it would not be pumped through your muscle or through your body, through your bloodstream, quick enough. Your senses wouldn't get any sharper. So you wouldn't be aware of your surroundings. And you would have less of a chance of finding something to be able to defend yourself. The strength of your muscles would not increase in proportion to the danger that you're facing. And this, as the snake was wrapping around your body, your mind would not be focused on the danger at hand. Instead, your mind would begin to wonder. You might be thinking, did I change the oil in my car? You know, it's been about 6,000 miles, I think, since I changed the oil. And you know, on the way home, I probably ought to get some milk, right? Now, every one of you are thinking, now, Pastor Allen, that's stupid. No one would ever think about changing the oil or stopping to get milk if a snake that big was trying to kill them. And you're right. And the reason you're right is because our bodies are created to produce stress in those type of situations. So we can't even imagine not being stressed. So in times of emergency, stress is a very good thing. But it's even not in emergencies that stress can be good. Uh, I should say, but even if it's not an emergency, stress can be good. If you've got a big project uh, that's due at work, and you don't have it even halfway finished, I want you to understand the night before you become very stressed. And that's a good thing. Because stress makes your senses more sharp. And so you're noticing all of the details that you need to get done. And your attention is really focused on the project. And because adrenaline is pumping through your body, you're able to work all night long without falling asleep. And the fear of not getting it done is causing other hormones to be released in your body that keeps you going. So in certain situations, you need to understand that stress is a good thing. It can be a very good thing. But... And there's always a but, right? But our bodies are not meant to be stressed for long periods of time. They're only meant to be stressed for short periods of time and only in certain situations. So if our body remains stressed for long periods of time, it becomes harmful. Or if we get stressed over every little thing so we always remain stressed, it's harmful, very harmful. In fact, medical science estimates that 85% of all mental and physical ailments in America are stress-related. Why? Because our bodies were never meant to remain stressed for long periods of time. So you've got to learn how to deal with stressful situations properly, and you have to learn how to relieve stress so you're not stressed all the time. Because if you don't, eventually it's going to take its toll on you. Eventually you're going to become sick or possibly even die. So in this series, I'm going to be teaching you 
two things. First of all, I'm going to teach you how to recognize the point at which stress stops being productive and starts being destructive. And secondly, I want to teach you how to relieve stress so you're not stressed all the time. So let's start with the first thing. How do you know when stress stops being productive and it starts being destructive? Well, let me tell you that there's a fine line between the two. But if you know what to look for, it's pretty easy to tell. You see, one of the main characteristics of stress is that our attention becomes, becomes focused on whatever is causing the stress, which is a good thing. At least it's a good thing for a little while. And let me give you an example to explain why I'm saying that. Let's suppose that you're having problems with your child. Your child is experimenting with drugs. Well, that's naturally going to produce stress, which is a good thing. Because if you weren't stressed, you would probably blow it off. And even if you didn't blow it off, you wouldn't be as focused as you really need to be in this situation. But stress changes that. Stress causes your senses to become sharper. So you're starting to notice things that you've never noticed before. You're starting to pick up on signals that you've never seen before. Things like who they're hanging out with where they're going, their attitude, the way they're responding in school, what are their grades in school, etc. And so now you're really focused on helping your child to make the steps that are necessary to go in the right direction. People, that's good. But there's always a but, right? But, but, if your attention becomes too focused on the problems you're having with your child and you can't think about anything else, you're in trouble. Because at that point... Your focus has shifted from legitimate concern into anxiety. And it's beginning to consume you. So now you can't think about anything else. And you're imagining the worst. People, at that point, stress becomes destructive. Why? Because as I told you, your body was not created to remain stressed for long periods of time. And now you can't think about anything else because you're stressed all the time. At that point... Stress is no longer productive, it's destructive. You're not effective at work, you can't focus at work, your boss tells you to do things, you forget about doing those things, you let things slide, now you're sick to your stomach, you're going to the bathroom all the time, or you've got ulcers, or you can't eat, and everything else is going to hell in a handbasket because you can't deal with that right now. Can you see why at that point, stress is now destructive? So let me give you the signs that indicate the stress has stopped being productive and has become destructive. If you're taking notes, you write this down. The first sign is this. You remain stressed all the time. Number two, you can't focus on other things. This is, is something that you're now obsessed with and you're fixated on it. And it doesn't matter what's coming up. You're not even listening to anyone else because you can't focus on anything else. Number three, you're constantly worried over the situation. And last but not least, you don't feel good physically. You're having tension headaches. You're having stomach problems. The things that I described, maybe you can't eat or you're going to the bathroom all the time or it feels like you're having an you have an ulcer now. You're not sleeping like you used to sleep. All of those are signs that stress is no longer productive. Now it's become destructive. So when you're stressing out, you need to look at those four signs and you need to see, is this now at the point where my stress is no longer productive, now it's destructive. And if it's destructive, 
then you need to find out a way to be able to alleviate it, to relieve it. Now listen to me. God never intended for us to be stressed all the time. He only created our bodies to be stressed for short periods of time and to be stressed in a productive way, not a destructive way. So God created ways for stress to be relieved and ways to ensure that our stress remains productive and doesn't become destructive. People, that's right. You need to understand something about God's Word. God's Word covers every subject that you could imagine. And God's Word teaches us specific ways to relieve stress so that we're not stressed all the time. And ways to ensure that our stress remains productive and doesn't become destructive. So over the next three weeks, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be teaching you different ways of relieving stress and how to keep the stress from becoming destructive. So, matter, so no matter how bad the situation is, you can have your A game on. I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter what you go through. If you will follow God's word and carry out his instructions, I promise you, you can be relieved of stress. You can keep stress from becoming destructive. So, let me show you the first way to relieve stress. The first way to relieve stress is through prayer. Now, I know most of you are thinking, oh, great. I thought he was going to give us something practical, something that we could use every day. But no, he's not going to do that. He's going to be like every other pastor. And he's going to turn this into something super spiritual. Listen to me. God's word is practical. If you follow his instructions, I promise you, his word will work. So I want you to understand that prayer really works. And I'm going to show you how prayer can keep stress from becoming destructive and how prayer can actually relieve stress. So turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4. We're going to zero in on verse number 6. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he has done. Now I want you to underline the word worry in your Bible. The word worry is translated from the Greek word merimnao. But more importantly, merimnao is written in the present tense, active voice, and imperative mood. Now I understand that the majority of you have never taken a class on Koinea Greek. So I need to explain what that means. So let me just explain what it means to be written in the present tense and in the imperative mood. The present tense denotes continual action. In other words, it's action without interruption. It just continues to go on and on and on, kind of like that energizer bunny. So what this is really saying is this. If you've got a problem, don't keep worrying about it. In other words, don't be obsessed with the problem and become fixated on it. Now, this is very important because God did not tell us not to worry. You see, many of you have been taught that God has told us not to worry. The problem with not understanding Greek is we misinterpret what the Bible is saying. You need to understand that there are times when it's good to worry. If your kid is experimenting with drugs, it's a good thing that you're worried about that. If your child is having premarital sex, it's a good thing that you're worried about that. God did not say, don't worry. Who's ever taught you that does not know what they're talking about. Because worry produces stress, and stress will put you on your A game 
in the necessary situations. Does that make sense? So God never told us not to worry. What God did tell us is not to continually worry. Don't become obsessed with it and become fixated on it. Now, Merimnao is also written in the imperative mood. The imperative mood means that it's a command. So God is commanding us to stop it. How many of you ever saw the uh, Bob Newhart, that little comedy he had where he was a counselor and a person come to, came to see him and he said that he only charged $60 for five minutes? And the person said, for five minutes? And he said, yeah, and if it takes longer than that, don't worry about it. He said, you can fix my problem in five minutes? And he said, sure. And he said, tell me about your problem. So this lady sat down, she explained the problem, and she said, I just can't help doing this. And he said, well, let me just tell you what you need to do. Stop it. She said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, what part of stop it do you not understand? Are you stupid? The way you can fix this is to stop it. Now, I want you to understand. God is commanding us to stop continually worrying. He's commanding us to quit obsessing over the problem. He's commanding us to quit fixating on it. Now, you know, as well as I do, that that is easier said than done, especially when you have a huge problem. Maybe your son is experimenting on drugs, or maybe your 14-year-old daughter is pregnant. Boy, how in the world can we do what God said? How can he command us to stop obsessing over it? to stop fixating on it. But the truth of the matter is, God did tell us to stop it. So how do we do that? How do we stop from continually worrying about the problem? How do we stop obsessing over it and fixating on it? Well, here's the answer. You ready to write this down? Pray. Pray. Look back at verse number six. Don't continually worry. That's a literal translation. Don't continually worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And then God does something interesting, and this is where we usually stop. God gives us a two-step formula to stop the continual worrying. You see, God is never going to tell us to do something without telling us how to do it. That's what I love about God's Word. Because if you came up to me and you said, well, I know God says I'm not supposed to do it, but I can't stop it. I want to tell you, you can stop it, and God has told us how to stop it. That's what I love about his word. Look at the last part of verse number six. Tell God what you need, and then thank him for all he has done. Two steps. Did you notice the two steps? Tell God what you need, and then number two, thank him for taking care of it. And then you walk away from it. Because at that point, it's no longer your problem, it's God's problem. Now, I know that some of you are thinking that won't work. I've heard preachers preach on this before, and I've tried to give things to God in prayer, but I just continue to keep worrying about it. I can't stop it. Well, I'm going to show you a little trick this morning that will teach you how to do what God's Word says. All right? Probably you were wondering what in the world I was doing bringing this box up here. Well, this is what I call my God box. How many of you have a God box? I see a hand back there. Anyone else have a God box? 
Well, if you do not have a God box, the thing that I want you to do this morning is I want you to go home after this service and get you a God box because God boxes are very, very necessary. And what I want you to do is whenever you have a problem, let's see what I did with my pencil. I want you to write down on a piece of paper, there's my pencil, what the problem is, the root of the problem, and then I want you to write down why you're worrying about it. I'll give you an example. My problem is my child is experimenting with drugs. And then you write down why you're worried about that. Well, I've noticed that they're not taking an interest in the things that they used to take an interest. They don't care anything about sports. Their grades are beginning to suffer. I'm realizing that this is becoming an escapism. And let me just explain something to all of you that think that drugs are safe. Let me explain what drugs do, and sometimes even alcohol can do this if you take it to the same extremes that people do with drugs. Drugs and alcohol can retard your social development because they are a means of escape. And the way that we mature and we grow is that we face certain situations and circumstances and we learn how to deal with that in a very mature way. Sometimes we fail, sometimes we succeed. But here's the problem. When you take drugs, that becomes a means of escape. And because it's a means of escape, you never learn how to really deal with social situations. I can tell you when I sit down with the drug, I'll just be honest, I'll just call them druggies. When I sit down with druggies, I can tell you about the age that they started taking drugs. Because at that age, they begin to socially retard. And that's why they do not fit into society like other people do. Now, if they get off of those drugs, then they can continue to grow in that. But here's the interesting thing. They still have to grow just like everyone else did. So they have to go back like they have a 15-year-old mentality if that's when they begin taking drugs. And they have to begin to face certain circumstances and learn how to interact in public. That's why when you meet someone that's been on drugs ever since they were a young teenager and they've been on drugs forever, it's like they're kind of stupid. And they don't act right in society. The reason they're that way is because they have socially retarded. Now... Having told you that, man, you're now writing down, and I'm worried about them doing this, I'm worried about them not going on to school, and I'm worried about this becoming uh, something that's addictive, and I'm worried about them now becoming a, maybe a, a thief or, or a burglar or whatever it is to support their drug habit. And you write everything down on a piece of paper. And then what you do is you fold this piece of paper up. And you hold it in your hand. And then you begin to pray over it. Now, God, this is the problem I had. I was cleaning my son's room, and I found marijuana in it, and I found the paraphernalia. And God, now I begin to understand why his grades are beginning to slip, and, and I'm seeing the way that he's dressing, the people he's hanging out with, and this is what I'm worried about. And you tell it to God. And you pray just as long as you want to pray. You pour your heart out to God. Now, once you finish praying about it, you get your God box out, and you take this, and you put it in the God box. That's a physical reminder to you that you're giving this to God. But here's the catch. Every time that that pops up in your mind and you start to worry, what you have to do is you have to go back to the God box, and you have to take this out of the God box, and you have to put it in your hand. You, let me go a little bit further. You have to put it in your dominant hand. Don't put it down. 
You have to keep it in your hand just as long as you're worrying about it. You hold on to it just as tightly as you're holding on to the situation because that symbolizes that you're still holding on to the problem and you're not giving it to God. And then you notice what happens as you go through the day. All of a sudden you notice that you cannot do the things that you always do. You get ready to go uh, drive the car, well now you got to go find the keys. And so you got to get the keys out of your pocket. And all you can really use is your left hand and your thumb along with your fist. And so now you got to find that key. So then you put it in your car. And then you get ready to shift it. And then all of a sudden you realize all you can use is your thumb. And then you go to work, and now you're trying to get the key out, and you're trying to open the door, and you're going in. And then you start to realize pretty soon that this is not doing any good holding on to your problem. In fact, what this is doing by holding on to it is actually causing you more problems. So pretty soon you're going to go back to God and you say, God, I can't hold on to this. I need to give it to you. You see how much I'm worrying about it. So God, I'm going to stop it. I'm giving it to you now. And I'm, I'm going to refuse to think about it. And you put it back in the God box. Now, you, continually to do, you continue to do that until you learn. You continually do this until you train yourself to give things to God. Pretty soon you're going to learn to cast your cares upon God because he careth for you. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 7. It says, give all your worries and concerns or cares to God, for he cares about you. Now people, I'm going to tell you, if you'll do this, it might seem stupid. But I promise, if you'll do this, not think about it, actually do what I showed you to. It will work. In fact, I heard about a person who did this, and it has completely changed their life. And I asked them to come up here this morning and tell you how a God box changed their life. Shirley Hicks, would you come on up? Where is Shirley? Oh, here she comes. Make sure I got this on. Shirley was going through some very, very tough things. And she had a problem not... Uh, or, or stopping worrying about it. She was just obsessed with it, and, and uh, as a result of that, she didn't know what she was going to do, so I'll let her share it with you. Go ahead. And actually, the God box wasn't my idea. I heard it on the radio one day, and my first impression was how silly. You know, that would never work. And then I became desperate enough one day that I decided to give it a try. When our youngest daughter, Carla, gave birth to her son, she developed something called peripartum peripartum cardiomyopathy. We had never even heard of such a thing, but found out it's a rare complication of childbirth. And she was sent home from the hospital that day with a, a dry cough, which is one of the symptoms, and the doctor said because it was dry, cold air, it was Christmas Day in Wichita, Kansas, and it's very, very cold up there. She kept getting sicker, and we kept calling the doctor with her symptoms, and they kept telling us it was a natural result of childbirth. We took her to the doctor. They told us it was... Uh, bronchitis. They sent her home with that. We call the doctor in the middle of the night and we're told to put her in a hot shower that that would help her breathe. I think we about killed her doing that. When nothing helped, our son-in-law drove her to the emergency room and I stayed home with the baby. About an hour later he called from the hospital and his words were, the doctor says we better call her family because she isn't going to make it. She's in heart failure and there's nothing they can do to help her. Well when I heard those words, that snake had reached out and bitten me. 
I didn't know what to do. I had never felt such fear. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. But I knew that I had to do something, and I didn't know what that needed to be. So for some reason, I turned all the lights on in the house. <laughs> I thought God could see me better if I did that, I guess. And I went and got her baby out of bed, and I held him, and I prayed holding him, knowing that this wasn't God's idea to have a young mother be so ill like this. I tried to think of people that I knew that might have a direct line to God, a much better line than I did because I wasn't very close to him at the time. And I couldn't think of that many people that might qualify. But I started calling family members and told them they needed to drive back to Wichita. They'd all just gone home when, when we brought her and the baby home. Thank goodness we had family. Margaret and Charlie drove up. They were there in a few hours to take care of Nicholas so I could go to the hospital. My sister-in-law, Ann, came to stay with me at the hospital. And when I arrived at that ICU, my urge was absolutely just to turn and run away from the situation because I have never been so scared in my life and I didn't know how to handle it. And instead, the nurses wouldn't let me leave the ICU room. They told me I could use her bathroom. I didn't need to go out. When nighttime came, they brought me a cot and put it at the side of her bed. Uh, they all came in crying all the time. And for the first time in my life, I felt totally helpless about a situation. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't really even know, trust God to answer my prayers. And I knew I had felt the pain of losing my father and the pain of losing a brother. And my fear had always been that if I lost one of my children, I knew that pain would be unbearable and I would just need to die with them. But you know, when the situation arises, that's not an option because you have other family, you have other children, we had a newborn baby to take care of. So I couldn't do anything. The diagnosis from the doctors was that if she lived for the first year, her chances of surviving would increase. But they did not know what that first year would bring. They told us either her heart could start enlarging and she could die a slow death, or it could stop instantly. So we spent the most of our time in doctor's offices and hospitals. I stayed with her in Wichita for four months. Uh, she did show signs of improvement. And she has a wonderful, caring husband, and I could see that he wanted to be the one to take care of his family. Uh, he didn't really resent me being there, but yet he, it was time that he take charge. So I felt it was time for me to leave. It was a terrible decision to make. It was a terrible drive down the Cimarron Turnpike that day. We lived in Tulsa at the time. I wasn't sure if I'd made the right decision. She was upset with me for leaving, but somehow I just knew it was the right thing to do. So I returned to Tulsa. I went back to my job at St. John Medical Center where I had worked for 20 years, and I made it three days because I couldn't concentrate, I couldn't function, I couldn't do anything but worry about her. We were in a meeting one day, and I just got up and walked out, and I said, I'm, I'm leaving. I have got to go find peace somewhere. I can't live with this constant fear and this constant worry. Every time I called and she didn't answer the phone, I assumed she was dead and the baby was laying there unattended. And I know I... I drove her crazy, calling her every two hours. A lot of times she was just at the mall shopping. But I knew I had to find some relief from the debilitating fear and worry. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't function. It was no concern to me that our finances were going to be affected by me walking out of my job. That wasn't important. Her health was the only thing that mattered to me. Somehow I got the idea if I moved to the country and I could sit with the birds and the squirrels and look at the lake, that that would bring me peace. So I called a realtor, sold our house. It sold the first day. And I took that as a sign from God that I was meant to move to the country, and that's where my peace would come from. So we did that, and I found absolutely no peace in the country. I would 
walk to Carter's Landing every day and sit at a picnic table and look at the water, thinking that would bring me peace. None of it did. I had been out of church for several years and did not have the faith that I needed to have in God. Thank goodness Margaret and Charlie had started coming to, to Cornerstone, and Charlie kept telling me that it was what I needed to do. He kept bringing me the tapes, and finally he convinced me to come. I still wasn't sure about it. But when I came here, what I found was a faithful group of believing, praying people. So when I didn't know how to pray, I asked them to pray for me, and they did. And I urge you, when you're in the middle of a situation and you're too distraught to pray, come to the altar. That's what it's for. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of faith that God's going to answer prayers. Use our email prayer chain. We have prayer warriors out there that are ready and waiting to pray with you and for you. Go to our website or call the church, and we'll get those out there for you. If you want to be one of those prayer warriors, God, we'll get you on the list. I also started studying and reading my Bible, and I learned that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And you learn that in church. I decided that was, that's why I wasn't hearing. I started reading and living by Philippians 4, 6 that Pastor Allen just quoted. It told me not to be anxious about anything, but to ask God with thanksgiving and, and present my request to him. And that was a new experience for me. I so wanted to find peace that I started my give it to God box, even though I thought it was foolish and I, I wasn't sure that it would work. So the first day I got a teensy tiny little box that was about three by three, and I had it filled up in a matter of moments. It didn't take that long. And I knew that God's word tells me that he will bear all of my problems, not just a few of them, not just the major ones. So I got a great big hat box and turned that into my give it to God box. And I sat one down one day and I said, okay, God, you, you ask for it, so I'm just going to give it to you. Here it comes. So I would write down, my daughter is ill and I can't do anything to help her. The doctors are telling me they can't heal her. They don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if she's going to live to be able to raise her little child. She sat us down and gave us instructions on how she wanted him to be raised and how we were to handle the holidays and how we were to share him. And I can't deal with this any longer, God. I cannot accept this, so I want you to take care of it. I want you to take care of our finances because I can't go to work anymore. I want you to take care of the guilt of my father's suicide. I want you to take the pain and sadness of my brother's death in a plane crash. And I would feel better for a little while, and then that worry would start creeping back in. And that's when God told me, go get it back out of the box. If you're going to carry it, then I'm going to make you take it. He didn't just say he would share our burdens. He said he would carry them for us. So I started carrying the note around in my hand and realizing that I couldn't even enjoy what time I did have with my daughter. I couldn't hold my grandchild. I couldn't enjoy my other children. I was completely letting this situation devastate and destroy my life and my family. One day I even resorted to getting out the packaging tape and I taped the lid to the box shut so that I couldn't open it up and get anything back out. And I had a teensy tiny little hole in the, in the box. And then I started paying attention to the other verses in Philippians that said, Rejoice in the Lord and pray and ask with thanksgiving. So I learned to start my prayers by thanking God. And by the time I got finished with the thanks, the problems didn't even come to mind as much anymore. So I can tell you that my God box wasn't an immediate solution, but it was a gradual solution, and I started seeing results once I let go and let God. She was ill for the next five years. We were in and out of doctor's offices all the time. Uh, we made lots of trips up there in the middle of the night. But I also started living by Philippians 4-7. 
it says whatever is true, whatever is noble, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. So I started thinking about the praiseworthy things. My daughter was still alive. She had a good, caring husband. Her grandchild was healthy. My other children were fine. So I started concentrating on those instead of the, the problem about her on time, on, all the time. And the list could go on forever as to what I, I found to be thankful for. Most of all was the, when I learned the promise of spending time in God with God in heaven, and that should be enough for any of us. I also stopped feeling sorry for myself. I got involved. I started volunteering in kids' church. I learned on their level. I did the tape ministry in my home, which has now turned into CDs, and that became an awesome blessing because I had the capability of listening to all of Pastor Ellen's old tapes that I caught up on things. I joined groups. I spent time with people. I no longer went to the park and sat on the picnic table feeling sorry for myself. I got involved with other people, and I think the best way of getting rid of your own problems is to get out and help others. And does it mean that there's no stress in life? Absolutely not. You know, we live in a, in a sinful, evil, difficult world. And sometimes it's not even logical that I can watch the evening news and be able to feel peace. But yet I can, knowing that, that God's the one who carries my burdens now. They're no longer mine, mine to, to carry. And I love the fact that he put the word comforter in the Bible. He doesn't even call him the Holy Spirit. He says that when Jesus left, he left us with a comforter that is here with us at all times. So now I know I can go to him in the middle of the night. I can go to him with any problem that I have and know that he's always going to be there for me. And I promise you, if you will start the God box, it may sound foolish to begin with, but if you will actually do it and realize the problems you're causing by carrying that burden with you when God's so willing to take it, it will work. Just a second. Just hang on. By the way, today our daughter's in perfect health. You can give a hand for that. <laughs> Basically, you were obsessed, fixated on the problem. You couldn't deal with anything else except that because you were so stressed out. I thought of nothing else. That's all I talked about. That's all I, I thought of nothing else but her health. So when you started that God box, mm -hmm. how often did you put it in and then take it out and then put it in and take it out? Uh, sad to admit, I did it for two or three years. It wasn't immediate. It was because we kept getting diagnosis with her help. It was not an easy process to give it up. It was a long, drawn-out process. So you're talking probably hundreds of times. Yes. And now do you still have a God box? It's in the closet. I haven't used it in a long, long time. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> now let me explain why I asked her, do you still use the, the God box? The reason I asked her that is because the purpose of a God box is to train you to give things to God. You see, that doesn't come naturally. And here's something you need to understand about the instructions that God gives us. Because we're in a sinful world, because we're in a cursed world, human nature many times is counterintuitive to what God tells us to do. It's just totally different. And so God tells us to bless our enemies. He tells us, or bless those who curse us. He tells us to do good to our enemies. He tells us to do all of these things that goes against human nature. And so when I tell you, don't continue to worry. Let me tell you, that goes against human nature. But God knows what's best for us. And the reason that I brought this up and I had Shirley come up here is because this went on for two or three years. But through that, she trained herself that she had a problem. 
She would write down that problem. She would write down why she was worried about it, and she would put it in the God box. And every time she started thinking about it again and she became fixated on it, she would go take that, put it in her dominant hand. Didn't ask her this, but you can. And she would actually not be able to do all the other things. And that was just a constant reminder that, listen, by you holding on to this, all this does is create even greater problems. You've got to give it to me. And over a period of two or three years, she trained herself to not continually worry. Yes, you might begin that worry. As I told you, God does not say, don't worry. He says, don't continue to worry. Something comes up, of course you're worried. That worry says, I need to take it to God. So you take what you're worried about and you tell God about it. And then you thank him for taking care of it and you learn to put your faith in him. You learn to give him your cares because he cares for you. 